Good morning, everyone. Hope you're doing well on this beautiful, sunny morning. If you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Ruth, you're going to find that in the Old Testament. It's the eighth book of the Old Testament, right after Judges. We're starting a new series this morning in Ruth. We're going to start with chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Aphrodites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech The husband of Naomi died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpha, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the women were left without, or sorry, the woman was left without her sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that you may become, they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, Would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore remain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. 
May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. That's the end of chapter 1, and it's a joy to read the Word of God with you this morning. Good morning, church. It is good to be with you and to read God's Word with you. Today we're beginning a new series in the book of Ruth. We're calling it Ruth, a redemption story. A redemption story. Ruth is a beautiful story. It's, a, it's, a, it's really a stunning story about love and self-sacrifice. And there's all kinds of um, human emotions involved, fears, doubts, struggles, um, friendship. If you've never read the book of Ruth, you're in for a real treat. It's encouraging. It's refreshing. Uh, maybe you, I encourage all of you actually to, to read it this week. You read it all the way through. It'll take you 10 or 15 minutes. And maybe you read it each week as we go through this study. And if you have read Ruth before, I want to encourage you to look at this book with fresh eyes over the next few weeks. I don't want you to see this book as primarily about a, a, a woman who is finding a man or how to win over a husband, okay? That's not the main point. This is not the biblical version of Bachelorette, all right? That's not what we're looking at. Right? One of the pastors this week, and we were figuring out what's the title of, this, of the series, uh, one of the pastors jokingly said, let's entitle this, How to Find Your Boaz. Right? No, that's not what we're doing here. I promise you, there's no, we're not going to like, do a gotcha sermon on, on marriage or relationships. Uh, there is courtship and marriage in this book, but that's not the main point. It's not the main point. Do you know the main point of Ruth? Ruth is about God working behind the scenes in the ordinary events of life to continue his plan to redeem individuals and to redeem his people as a whole. That's what this book is about. You see, what makes this story actually so compelling and powerful is that God does something extraordinary through the ordinary and the mundane events of life. You see, this book is a book for those who wonder if God can really be at work if you aren't seeing any miracles in your life. This book is for those of us who can't even fathom how God could use our ordinary and messy lives to accomplish something meaningful and beautiful. This book is for those of us who wonder, where is God when the trials of life keep chipping away at our faith? Pastor Brady and I have both shared now about our our mutual enjoyment of superhero movies, right? They strike a chord deep within us. 
And all of those movies have some kind of supernatural element, right? Some kind of magic or miracles or, you know, superpowers, right? Superman can fly and Spider-Man can, can, can jump on buildings and shoot webs and Batman can do everything. You know, they, they all have superpowers. But there's, there's something refreshing about a story, a book, a novel, a movie where there's no supernatural element at all. Maybe some of the movies that you enjoy, they're just about basic life, but, but somehow in, the, in the, the normalness of life, God does something extraordinary. That's the book of Ruth. God loves to work in the mundane and the ordinary, even though you may not see it. There are no miracles in this book. No dramatic displays of God's power, and yet it's a stunning display of God's great power in bringing redemption, in rescuing people. That's what redemption means. It means rescuing people out of something. So today, Ruth 1, the title is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I took that from a title of a hymn by the great hymn writer William Cooper. God's ways are often strange to us. We admit that. And yet His divine providence, His, His guiding and orchestrating all things for our good and His glory, that's what providence is. His providence is always at work, even in mysterious, strange ways. Let's look at what I mean by that. Ruth 1, we see in the beginning this lesson, God is at work in the darkest of times. Verses 1 to 5, the author begins in verse 1 by giving us some context, Right? The story takes place, it says, in the days when the judges ruled. This is referring to a very dark and violent time in Israel's history, before there were any kings. A 400-year period where people were doing all kinds of crazy things. If I were to name them now, it would be PG-13. It's, in fact, the book of Judges is right before Ruth. It's probably on the opposite page of Ruth. And if you look there, if you glance, the last verse of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, it sums up this time period. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You could have written that today. And because of this, God's people were caught in this downward spiral of they would sin against God, they would rebel, turn against God, and then God would judge them for their sin like He told them He would. He would discipline them, and then they would realize, we've messed up, and they'd cry out to God for help, and then God would mercifully rescue His people by raising up a judge to deliver them, only to have them turn back away from God again and start the cycle over and over again. And here in Ruth, during one of those vicious cycles, we, we, it judges this kind of like the, the, the large kind of 30,000 view, 30,000 foot view of Israel. And now we zero in, we zoom in on one family and see how God is not just able to bring good out of darkness and evil on a national level like he does in the book of Judges, but he's able to do it on a personal family level too. God is at work in the darkest of times. Christian, you should write that down, and you should believe it, and you should rest in it, and you should pray to be able to rest in it, because you might think right now God is absent or God is silent, or even that He's against you. That's what Naomi's going to feel like. 
But Christian, the reality is God is doing a work in your life, in your family, in your heart that you couldn't even imagine if he told you. And it's a work to redeem you, not to crush you. It always is about redeeming you and never about crushing you. And so here we are during the time of the judges, and it says there was a famine in the land. This is a, a crisis of, of, of great significance. There's a, a real danger in this time period. When there's a famine in the land, there's a real danger of starvation and death. That's the reality they live in. And that's when Elimelech, this man from Bethlehem, who's married to Naomi, decides to move his family from Bethlehem in Judah and takes his, his family to Moab, enemy territory. They hate each other. God had pronounced a curse on Moab way back. This was a bad decision by Elimelech. God had called his people, live in the land that I've given you. Trust me to provide for you. Trust me in the land. But Elimelech makes this unwise choice to leave his land, leave the, the land of promise, and go to a land where they worship false gods. And then the next tragedy strikes. While in Moab, Elimelech, the father of the family, the head of the family, the provider of the family, dies in Moab. Naomi is now a widow in a foreign land. Her two sons, Malon and Chilion, while in Moab, decide to marry Moabite women, Orpah and, Judah, and, and Ruth. And now things get from bad to worse. Ten years of childless marriage, now both her sons die, and it sums up the whole story. Like ten years are summed up in verse 5. Very quickly, we're going through a, a ten-year period, but then verse 5, so that the woman was left without her two sons, and her husband. It's as if she just lost not just her family, but her very name. Notice that? And the woman was left. In other words, she had nothing. She was a nobody. The threat of her family being, the threat of starvation was serious, but the threat of her family being wiped out of the tribal line of the lineage of Israel, which is what would happen if they don't have a son that continues the line, that was more devastating in this time period. This is an all-out crisis on every level. And here's Naomi, a widow in a foreign land, no one to offer her protection or provision. She's lost everything. She's alone. She's vulnerable. She's completely empty. She's going to live a socially and economically marginalized life from here on out. She knows it. A life of poverty, a life of shame. That's why she says later in this chapter when she gets back to Bethlehem, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter in Hebrew. Call me bitter. I went away full. I came back empty. Call me empty. Have you ever been there? Ever felt like, ever felt like, you know, life is like this, this bowl, and, and you know, it, it sometimes it starts to fill up, and it feels like, okay, we're getting somewhere, right? Good things are happening, but you know there's this secret drain valve in your tank, and no matter how good things get, no matter how much they start to fill, you know there's this, this, there's this valve, and at some point, who, whether it's God doing or, or whoever's doing it, they're going to they're gonna open that drain valve, and things are going to start draining out, and life's going to get back to empty again. I just know it. 
And for some of you, that's why you're afraid to love or commit to friendship or to commit to a church. Maybe you've been jaded like Naomi and you feel empty. The question we're left with after verse 5 is, can Naomi ever recover from this? Will tragedy just define her life? We're also left wondering, where's God? Where is he? Is he, is he at work? Is God at work in the darkest of times? Because I don't, I don't see that at all. Lesson number two, no matter how your life has turned out, you can always return to the Lord. While in the throes of grief and pain and sorrow, there's this tiny sliver of hope that breaks through the dark clouds. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. The famine seems to be over. And she decides, I'm going to leave Moab. I'm going to leave this place that that we came to and I'm going to return to Bethlehem, my home. This language of return is actually significant. in, In the Hebrew, it's the same word as repent. She's making a change. She's turning. She's returning to Bethlehem. Again in verse 22, the author emphasizes it. So Naomi returned. That's significant. Maybe Naomi had no choice in the matter when Elimelech decided to go to Moab. But she chose to stay after he died. She chose to stay for ten heartbreaking years. She knew this wasn't the land of promise. She knew this wasn't the covenant land God had given them. She knew they likely should not have gone to Moab. And now she hears of God's merciful provision for His people. Likely because they had repented of their sin and judges, you know, they repent, God mercifully provides. And she's wondering, Could there be mercy for her too? Could there be more to life than just tragedy after tragedy? Here's the thing. Naomi doesn't have all the answers. She's not arrived when she returns, has she? She's still a mess. She's still wrestling things out. But she begins the journey back. She knows she needs food and she begins her return trip back to Bethlehem. Which, by the way, Bethlehem means house of food, house of bread. I think we see here in Naomi not just a return back to her land physically, but a return back to the Lord spiritually. She doesn't have it all figured out. There's still a lot of healing and growth that God is going to bring into her life that she needs. But she is returning back to God. She's turning back to the one who can provide everything she needs. Maybe Elimelech couldn't. Maybe her sons couldn't. But she knows there is a God. She knows it is Yahweh, the Lord. Listen to me. Some of you have been wandering in, in Moab for a long time. If you're a Christian, you've trusted in Jesus, but, but you've turned away from the Lord. You've been wandering in a, in a foreign place. You've not been following Him. 
Maybe you're watching online, maybe a family member, maybe a friend inviting you, and, and, and you know, you know, maybe when you were a kid, you made a decision for Jesus, or, or as an adult, you know, you want to you wanna be a Christian, but life just kind of has a way of kind of struggling and, 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 and squeezing things, and so you're like, man, I, I don't know, I've, I've been wandering, and here's what I need to tell you this morning. Today is the day for you to return home to the Lord. Today is the day. You've been trying to do life on your own terms, and it's, it's time for you to turn back to him. Maybe you're hurting, maybe it's something you've done, or maybe it's something done to you. Listen, I don't know what it is, and, and, and I don't need to know specifically what it is, but here's what I know. You can always return home to the Lord. If you feel like the prodigal son in Luke 15, who he made a complete mess out of his life, he's done nothing right, and he says, I'm going to go back to my dad's house as a slave. He knew his life was a debacle. But as soon as he made that turn, what does his father do? He runs him with open arms. That's how our Father in heaven will turn to you when you turn to him. He's got open arms waiting for you. You can have it. You, listen, you can return to the Lord with ha- without having it all figured out yet. I have, there's so many people who are like, you know what, once I get this thing in my life together, maybe, maybe I'll turn back. No, that's not how it works. The prodigal son did not get life back together and then turn back to the Lord. He would have never turned back. He turned back to his father and his father made his life better. His father brought healing. His father brought transformation. His father gave him security and welcome and, and forgiveness. Naomi doesn't have it all figured out. That's why when she's in Bethlehem, she's still saying, call me bitter. She started the return, but she's, it's still a process. And so, they, so she begins this return to Jerusalem, uh, sorry, to Bethlehem, and things now slow down. The narrative slows down, and they start to have dialogue. Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws are walking back to Bethlehem, and Naomi decides, this is ridiculous. You girls should not be coming with me. There's, no, there's nothing for you here in Bethlehem. There's nothing for you there. You should go back to your father's home. Go back to your families of origin. At least you could possibly remarry. At least you'll have provision by, by your father, your family of origin. Go back. And, and that's a logical argument, right? Don't come with me. There's nothing for you with me. I don't have more sons. Even if I were to remarry today and have sons, are you going to wait for more? For, no, you can't. But there's a little bit of deeper because she moves some logic to lament, right? It is logical. There's nothing that Naomi has for them. But from her logic, she moves to lament. In verse 13, she says, in essence, there's something wrong with me. You don't want to stick with me, girls, because your life may be as bitter as mine. The hand of the Lord has been against me. You see, from Naomi's perspective, the famine in Bethlehem that led to her going to Moab, the death of her husband and sons, are all evidence of God's bitter providence. God's bitter providence. Now, honestly, I would take that perspective than someone who has a wishy-washy view of God. Someone who has a sentimental view of God, that God does never does anything wrong. He never allows anything bad to happen. He's only a God of good, and, Satan's God, and Satan is the God of bad, and it's good versus evil, and one day God will eventually win. That's, that's hogwash. That's mythical stuff. That's ridiculous. It's not biblical. 
I'd rather Naomi, who has a clear view, God's hand is in control even in the bad, even though her theology has gone astray. I'd rather that to start with, because you can work with that. You can, when you know God is in control, there's always hope. She feels like God is punishing her. He's out to get her. That's wrong. But I told you, her return is a messy return. And so Orpah kisses her mother-in-law. She, she takes, she heeds Naomi's advice, and she goes back home. But Ruth, it says, at the end of verse 14, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. And then Ruth says this, or Naomi says, See, verse 16, 15, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to your people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And then these are, this is the most stunning, almost the most stunning speeches in the Bible. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And then she invokes the name of Yahweh. May the Lord, Yahweh, do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This young Moabite woman says, to Naomi, her mother-in-law, I am binding myself to you in such a way that whatever happens to you is going to happen to me. You, your God will be my God. I will live with you. I will die with you. So help me, God. Listen, if, if you're an immigrant from another country, or maybe, maybe some of your parents immigrated or grandparents immigrated from another country, if you, have, if you have any idea what it's like to be an immigrant, you know that being an immigrant is a radical thing. Immigrating to another country is a radical move. An immigrant leaves their family of origin, leaves their country of origin, and strikes out into the unknown. It's radical. My parents decided to immigrate from Egypt to America where they got their paperwork approved, stamped. You can immigrate. You can, you can go there and eventually become citizens. They left everything that was comfortable for them. I mean, all their, their mom and their father, their, their sisters, their brothers, their work, everything. They could only take a, a small amount of money because the country wouldn't let them. I mean, they're, they're hiding money in their buttons. My, my family has crazy stories. My aunt said she would hide, hide money in her buttons because they wouldn't let her take out money out. And she took one, one luggage my mom was eight months pregnant with my oldest brother when they got the paperwork and my dad said, we're leaving. And my, and my mom's mom was like, are you crazy? Let, have the baby here, then go. He goes, nope, we're starting afresh in a new country. I would not have the guts to do that. But here's the thing. Why do immigrants make such radical sacrifices? Isn't it because of the hope of a better life? Isn't that why they do it? Whether it's for them or, or their children, or they're thinking, it's my children's children that will ultimately benefit from this. I'm going to sacrifice for them. That's an amazing thing. But here's the difference. Ruth, this young woman, is leaving everything familiar behind. But she doesn't do so with the hope of a better life. She does so knowing she's going to face a worse life. This is a Moabite woman a widow who's going to live in enemy country. 
she will likely, most likely be looked down upon, harassed, and even harmed. In fact, in chapter 2, Boaz tells his, his men, he says to Ruth, I had to tell them not to touch you. Could you imagine what, happened, what would have happened to her if she went to a different field? She's giving up any, ch any chance in her mind of remarrying, any chance of protection or provision customary for women in her day. She's wrapping her future entirely up into the future of Naomi's. And, and Ruth says, I will sacrifice all of that for you. This is spectacular. Please understand how radical this is. She even invokes the name of Naomi's God, Yahweh, and she confirms her oath, that oath with that loyalty. Why? Why is she doing this? The only reason she has is because she loves her. And not just because she loves her because her mother is so lovely, her mother-in-law is so lovely, she loves her because God has given her this ability to offer, this, this is a Hebrew word, chesed. It's the, the word that means covenant, loyal, costly love. It's often the love that is described of, from God to us. An undeserved love, a radical kind of love. Ruth is showing this kind of love to her mother-in-law. Where do you think she learned it? Where did Ruth learn this kind of love? Where could she come up with this kind of love? Did she just, did it, did she just conjure it up? I would argue that she learned it, ironically, from Naomi. Do you realize that Naomi is showing Ruth and Orpah this kind of sacrificial, loyal love by putting their needs above her own when she says, you go back to your families. You go back to your father's house. You can likely remarry. You can be provided for there. Yes, she's bitter. Yes, she feel, uh, she's got these negative thoughts about herself. But she's, she's thinking about them. Wouldn't it have been better for her to have at least companionship? Wouldn't it have been better for her to bring two women to Israel and figure out a way together how they can make it? She knows alone she is worse. And yet she shows them this kind of costly love by saying, you go back. You go back. For your sake, I'm telling you to go back. Maybe Ruth saw Naomi's faith lived out the last 10 years. And so maybe that was a part of it. I don't know. Or maybe it was right here in this moment of seeing a broken and bitter Naomi still seeking to love Ruth sacrificially. Maybe that was the moment that Ruth said, I get it now. I get it. I want your God. I want to worship your God. I want to follow your God. Church, this is a conversion story. Did you know that? That is what is happening here. Ruth is saying, I don't want my old gods. I want to follow your God. I want to follow Yahweh, the God of Israel, the, the God of all creation, the one and true living God. And you may think, well, then Naomi is the worst kind of evangelist. If Naomi had anything to do with Ruth's conversion, she's a lousy evangelist. And maybe she is but she's exactly the kind of person God used to bring faith to Ruth. Isn't that amazing? 
You might think, I'm, I, I could never share my faith. My life is such a wreck. Yeah, well, look at Naomi's life. And God used her in this weird, again, he, God's working in strange, mysterious ways to rescue this young woman, Ruth, so that she can change the world. Now, you might think Ruth's conversion and, and her presence with Naomi would have boosted her spirits as they returned back to Bethlehem, but, but that's not so. Sadly, it's not so yet. Lesson number three, though. Because God is always at work, you can have hope. The final scene is of Ruth and Naomi arriving in Bethlehem. Verse 19. And this arrival causes a lot of interest, a lot of excitement in the town. They haven't seen Naomi in 10 years. They're asking questions. Where's her husband? What, 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 is, what has life been like? Where's her two sons? Well, who, who is this young lady with her? Naomi explains, verse 20. They said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. This is a summation of how she thinks life has gone. I went away full, I came back empty. She thinks her life is defined by emptiness. The word, the name Naomi in Hebrew means beautiful. Pleasant, good. But now she says, don't call me that. She, she like tells them, she demands, don't call me by Naomi. I don't want to ever hear anyone say beautiful and good anymore. I want you to call me Mara because that means bitter. And so every time you say Mara to me, I want to be reminded my life is bitter. My life has been emptied. There's just a complete sense of hopelessness. It's almost, like she, it's almost like she senses that God is this divine card dealer, right? And he's dealing out cards, right? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't ever know a casino, but I know, I know what dealers do. I've watched enough movies, you know, they deal out cards. And some people get good hands and some people get bad hands. And you, have, and you can do nothing about it. You're sitting there and it's up to the dealer and even the dealer doesn't even know. He's just dealing out cards. But some people are like, oh, I got dealt a good hand. I'm, I, I make it big. And some people get dealt a bad hand and they're like, that's the hand I was dealt. You ever heard that? It's just the hand I was dealt. Or maybe you're too spiritual to use that kind of language of like the hand I was dealt. But you do feel like the Lord has, been, has dealt bitterly with you. Over the years, I've talked to a number of you, a number of people who, who feel deep down, they might look okay this morning, you're going to smile and say hello to each other afterwards, but deep down there is a sense that God has dealt bitterly with them. And I admit, God's providence can be very hard. The things that He ordains, the things that He allows can bring immense pain and suffering. And if we're tempted to think, well, it, it, it was because of her sin, right? We always got to find a reason. It was because of Naomi's sin that, or, or Elimelech's sin that he dis, God disciplined them. Maybe, but not necessarily. Proverbs 34 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. God never promises that as Christians we will be exempt from afflictions. What he does promise is that he'll be with us in our afflictions. What he does promise us is that our afflictions will never be wasted. That even the evil done to us or through us can be redeemed for good. We just don't know the good, all the good that God is up to. 
As John Piper famously says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. That's probably accurate. And if that is true, that means there's always reason for hope. And if you look for signs of hope, you might actually see them. But you have to look. Hope doesn't just happen. You have to look for it. You have to be open to it. Naomi said she was empty. She was hopeless. And yet the author brilliantly reminds us in verse 22, that is not true. That Naomi cannot see the hope right in front of her and she needs help. Verse 22, said Naomi returned. There's hope there. And Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. There's hope there. Empty Naomi walks into Bethlehem with this incredibly loyal and loving daughter-in-law. This young woman standing next to her is going to provide for her physical needs and get grain from Boaz's field. She's going to ultimately redeem Naomi's life, Naomi's lineage, and ultimately through Ruth, God is going to redeem all of his people as he continues the line of the Messiah. Naomi is moping around, and she has this priceless treasure standing right next to her, and she can't even see it. Some of you have glimmers of hope right in front of you, but you can't see it. You're not willing to see it, and you need to ask God, open my eyes to see it, or you need to be in community so other people can lovingly point out, wait a minute, is everything wrong? Is everything gone wrong? Because I see this, is that... Could that be God working? Could that be a good thing? Naomi can't see it. You know why? Because she thinks she knows how life should go. She thinks she knows how God should be working. That's why she can't see it. She's blinded because she she has an agenda. And because God's agenda doesn't align with her agenda, right? They don't look like this. They're different. Because of that, she can't see signs of hope that God has put right in front of her. And some of you are in the same boat as Naomi. You think you know how life should go. And things aren't going your way. And this blinds you and I to the things that God has provided to show us He is faithful, He has been faithful, He will be faithful, and that's why we struggle with hope. God has provided Ruth to give Naomi hope, and then the author tells us something else at the end of 22. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. In other words, the famine is over. Naomi and Ruth have arrived at just the right time for reaping. The rest of the book is about Naomi rediscovering God as her Redeemer and that He's always been working even though she couldn't see it. You see, Ruth is going to meet Boaz in chapter 2. And in a story only God could script, this Moabite widow will marry this honorable Jewish man and they're going to have a child named Obed. And he's going to be the grandfather of King David. And you might think, so what? So what? 
But when the, the, the Matthew sits down to write the gospel of Matthew, or the, the, the gospel account of Jesus' life, and he starts writing the lineage, right? Starting uh, with, with, with Adam all the way down to, to Jesus, and he's writing all the fathers, begat this so, begat son, this son, this son, this son. And then he, in the middle he stops, and he, and he has four women included in the lineage, which is really strange. And one of those women is Ruth. He names Ruth. Why is Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus? Because Ruth points to the one who would come out of her. The one who is her ultimate descendant. You see, when when Ruth looks at Naomi after being told to return home, she makes a decision. She says, if I go home and save my life, Naomi's going to lose her life. She has lost all hope. I know she's alone. She's lost. And so she said, Naomi, Ruth says, if I, so if I give up my life by going with Naomi to, to Israel and potentially being harmed, if I give up my life, at least there's the hope that her life will be saved. Her life will be spared. And what does Ruth do? She leaves her father's home. She leaves her country of origin. She becomes an outsider, doesn't she? A Moabite enters into uh, Judah, enters into Israel, and she becomes a servant who's marginalized and rejected by most of the people around her. And she was introduced to the world in the town of Bethlehem. And through her loyal, costly love, she brings redemption to Naomi, to the nation of Israel, and to the world. Who does that sound like? That's exactly what Jesus Christ came to do. You see, Ruth is the Christ figure in this passage. Jesus left his father's home, didn't he? He stepped out of heaven. He became an outsider here on earth. He came to his own and his own received him not. He became poor and marginalized. His parents didn't even have the right sacrifice, the the proper sacrifice when he was born. And he ultimately loses his life. Why? Why? So that through his poverty, you and I might be made rich spiritually. So that through his rejection, you and I might be accepted by our Heavenly Father. So that through him laying down his life, you and I could experience eternal life. You see, Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He died in your place and in my place. And on the cross, it looked like God was being silent, didn't it? It looked, even Jesus himself was crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It looked like in the beginning story here with Naomi that God was silent, that he was making her life bitter, that she was empty. The problem is she just felt empty. She wasn't truly empty. Jesus was truly made empty on the cross. He was emptied of everything. He was totally stripped. And yet things are not always as they seem. Because in the emptying of Jesus, Jesus was doing his greatest work, his filling work. In Jesus' losing, he was winning. In the worst moment in history, God was still working in ways that you and I could never fathom. Jesus was securing our redemption on the cross, our freedom from sin and freedom from shame, as we just sang about earlier, our freedom from despair and guilt. In the emptying of Jesus, God was filling us with unimaginable hope. And just like Ruth did what she did out of loyal love, chesed love, costly love, Jesus did all of this because he loves you. You say, well, I'm not lovely. I know. He doesn't love the lovable. He makes you lovely by loving you. 
He gave himself entirely for you. He didn't hold anything back. And so I just asked this morning, first of all, do you need to trust in Christ Jesus as your Savior? Do you need to turn to him? Naomi, return to him. But some of you need to turn to him for the first time and say, you know what? I don't understand everything in the Bible. I may not even understand everything about Ruth and the Old Testament. But, I, but I, I do know that the story of Jesus coming to earth, the reality of him dying for me and rising again, that I might experience an identity that is beyond just what my hands can do at my job and whether I'm, I'm, I'm considered cool among other people or whether my house looks awesome. I want an identity that goes beyond those things that I am loved and accepted. Then you can return to him right Right now, you can turn to Jesus. Christian, do you need to turn back to God in some way today and trust the unseen hand of God? Do you need to ask for spiritual eyes to see the signs of hope that God has put in front of you? I said the title of this message is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It's a hymn. William Cooper wrote this. He, he struggled with depression almost his entire life. And he wrote incredible hymns of the faith, including this one. Listen to these words. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The cloud you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. You see, at the end of days, God will show us what he's been doing and why he's been doing it. He's his own interpreter. We don't get to decide why and how and what. We simply trust and rest. And when he makes it plain, he'll show that the bitter buds will have produced a flower that is so stunning and beautiful and glorious. And that flower will be you. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We rely on you entirely for life, for every moment, every aspect of life. Lord, we confess that oftentimes we judge how life is going based upon how we think it should be going. And I know there's so many times in life where I have felt like Naomi in this story. One minute, one minute I feel full, the next it feels like I've been emptied. God, if there are those who are here this morning who feel empty, I pray that they would turn to you. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the 1,432nd time, but I pray that they would turn to you and find that you are everything. That you can fill us in a way that there is no drain valve that can take it away. That you can fill us with your love, your presence, your mercies, your promises in a way that this world could never do. Yes, Lord, this world is fading away, but your presence, your promises will never fail. All the promises of God are yes and amen. And we want to believe that this morning, Jesus. We want to believe that you're that good because you are that good. 
We want to rest in your beauty and your goodness because you are beautiful and you are good and your unseen hand is at work in our lives and one day you will show us what you have been doing. Just like you showed through the book of Ruth, through the story of Ruth, that you were redeeming them. That was your plan all along. We love you. We thank you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.